Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Israelites, the Hebrews, got into Egypt because there was a famine in their land. And so they were forced to come find some place to find food, and they found it in Egypt. And God's people now have, have grown. There's a bunch of them. They were just kind of a small family of people to begin with, and now there's close to maybe two million of them in Egypt and the nation as a whole. And as they've grown, the Pharaoh at that point started to get nervous about how big this nation of Israel had grown, knowing if they were to align themselves with a the military power, this could be bad for everybody. And so he, he decides to pronounce an edict that the firstborn male child, a male child that are born, they must be killed. They must be thrown into the Nile River, born and then thrown into the Nile River. And so there's a woman who, who hears what Pharaoh says. And like many of our middle schoolers, hears what Pharaoh says and decides she's gonna reinterpret that to what she wants it to say. And so she takes her baby, um, her, her son named Moses, places him in a basket, a reed basket, covers it in tar and pitch, and then puts him in the Nile River, just like Pharaoh said, put your baby in the Nile. And so she said, yes, sir. And so she does. And this baby, sweet baby Moses, floats down the river, ends up stuck in a reed bush, and ends up that uh, Pharaoh's daughter is there, happens to hear the baby crying, rescues him. Pharaoh's sister is there and says, hey, I, I see you got a Hebrew baby. You caught one. Good. How big is it? Is it, is it a pretty big f- baby? <laughs> and so they, great. And she said, hey, do you want me to get a Hebrew woman to nurse this Hebrew baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, well, that's a great idea, four-year-old girl. You, you should do that. And so uh, Miriam goes back and gets her mama, who happens to be Moses' mama, and says, hey, I've got a woman to nurse this baby. It just happens to be his mom. And so... Uh, the sovereignty and providence of God. But Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. He's there for about 40 years, about 40 years old or so. He comes to the realization that he's a Hebrew when his brothers and sisters, his uh, cousins and nieces and nephews are being beaten. And he goes out to see this, these Egyptians beating the Israelites and he finds one man and says, why are you beating him? And the man talks back and then Moses strikes the man and kills him, leaves him for dead. Buries him in the sand like a little kitty cat. Buries him in the sand. Uh, runs back. The next day comes back out and sees two Hebrews fighting. He says, why are you guys fighting? And they say, hey, you, you're gonna kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses says, I, no. I, uh, uh. And then Moses runs uh, into the wilderness and he's there for 40 years. While he's there, he gets married, has a family. And then around the age of 80, God calls him through a burning bush. We'll look at this a little bit in Exodus 3 to come back and set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Moses has come back. Um, he doesn't feel qualified or good enough. And so God says, fine, then I'll, I'll have your older brother come too. So Moses and Aaron uh, come to Pharaoh and they tell Pharaoh, hey, God said, let our people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't know who you are and I don't know who your God is. So no, I will not let your people go. And in fact, I'm gonna make it worse for your people now because it seems like you guys are bored dreaming up dreams of going on vacation and so you have to work harder. I'm taking away the straw. Go find your own straw. It's gonna get harder. The people get mad at Moses. Moses gets mad at God. And this is the beginning of a cycle you're gonna see throughout the next few chapters of Exodus. So we're gonna pick up here in Exodus chapter six. I'm gonna read these first 13 verses and then we're gonna talk. Exodus chapter six, verse one. But the Lord said to Moses, 
Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Circle that word now. For with a strong hand, he, Pharaoh, will send them out. And with a strong hand, he, Pharaoh, will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. You can circle that word. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Circle, underline that. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, you can underline that phrase, and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, okay, go in. And tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This should sound familiar to you because it's very similar to what happened with Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. God says, go do this. Moses says, it's too hard. God says, tell them this. And Moses says, I told them this. But then they got mad. And then God says, oh, okay, well, then go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, how can I go to Pharaoh? My own people won't listen to me. And then God tells Moses and Aaron, the command's still the same. Get my people out of there. Look in verse nine, if you would. Listen to why the people did not hear Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So before we get into this this morning, um, I want us to see if we can find ourselves here in Exodus 6, verse 9. What we're going to study this morning isn't going to end with a kind of application of what to do. The application this morning is how to think. And what has to happen for us is what has to happen to the people of Israel. I think many of us sit here and we hear from the word of God. We hear the power of the word of God delivered through a mediocre sermon. But because of our very broken spirit and harsh slavery, we can't hear the word of God. Now in the Hebrew, the Hebrew language uses a lot of euphemisms uh, in their language. So this phrase here, broken spirit, actually means shortness of breath. Which I think is so powerful. When your spirit is broken, would you say you find it hard to breathe? You feel the burden on you. When your spirit is broken, don't you feel like every breath is shortened? You don't have the endurance you used to have? That's what this phrase means. And essentially what's happening is the people of Israel can't hear the good news of rescue because they're so burdened by their conditions, by their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And the truth is many of us this morning, you're here because you've always been here on Sundays. 
Or maybe you came because somebody told you to come or because you, you felt compelled to, you were guilted into being here. Many of us are here just begging for God to do something. Maybe, maybe if I do this, God will intervene. Maybe. But here's the problem for many of us. We're not gonna hear God because we're having a hard time breathing. My hope this morning is through this passage is to give you your breath back. I wanna open our lungs this morning that we might in fact breathe again this morning. In Ezekiel chapter 20, the prophet Ezekiel references back to this period of time with the Israelites. And what he says about them, the reason why they had a broken spirit and experienced harsh slavery was actually because they had started to worship the Egyptian gods rather than the one true God. And so when the one true God shows up and says, I'm gonna set you free, the truth is they had found themselves worshiping other gods and were worried more about pleasing them than actually being set free by the one true God. So maybe what's happened for you and me is maybe, maybe we've begun to worship other gods. Gods of work, gods of our spouses, gods of our kids, gods of a bank account, gods of a good market to sell your house, gods of a new school or a new job. Maybe you have been beaten down, but maybe it's just that our hearts have turned to worship an idol instead. So here's what I'm gonna ask us to do. If you'll just bow your heads and close your eyes and ask the Lord this morning to open your ears, give you ears to hear, give you eyes to see, and a heart that feels what God has for us this morning. Ask that he would make you receptive to his word. That wherever there's idolatry in your heart, he would tear it down for his glory and your good. God, we ask for it this morning. Uh, we believe your word, and if we don't, help us too. Many of us, um, we feel the shortness of breath. We feel overwhelmed. We feel beaten down. And we're looking for a way out, God, but it feels like you haven't given it to us. So many of us are hurting and we're struggling and because of that distorted view, God, we haven't seen you. So would you take the scales off of our eyes, give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Now, I don't know what it was like for you when you started to name your children, um, what kind of a process that was for you. If you're a celebrity, there is no process. You just pick something random and you name your child that. But for us real people, like this matters because they'll be called that in school. And so we have to decide what we're gonna call our kids. And um, every name comes with baggage, doesn't it? Like there are certain names you will never name your kid because you knew someone with that name. And if you were to name your child that name, you feel like that personality would carry forward and you don't wanna be with that person anymore. Anybody in here a teacher? Any teachers in here? It's hard, isn't it, to name your kids? Because you've known a lot of kids with a lot of names. And you've, you've said their names a lot. You've put other words before it, but you've said those names a lot. And so now it's like, I, if I'm gonna name this kid, I'm, I'm worried about the name. I'm, I'm just worried that that name is gonna transcend and, and carry forward into it. Every name has a reputation. And so for many of us in naming kids, certain names were out. In fact, um, history has some names, doesn't it, that you would never name your children? Never. Because of the reputation they've carried in history and the genocide they, they've carried out or, or the presidency they ran, whatever it is, you would never name your child that. These names carry something. Because those names were attached to their story. 
And so their stories began to define the name even more than the name defined the child or the person. The stories did that. And so even though our, our children won't have the same story as that classmate or uh, that um, ex-wife or whatever, even though our kids won't have that name or that story, we project the identity of that person onto, it, onto our children because of, of their name. And the truth is we do the same thing with God. God has a name, but we've got some distorted thinking about who this God is. And many of us, it's because we've been raised in the South, you've been raised in church, you've, you've been raised by a parent or a grandparent who uh, proclaimed the name of God but didn't actually live like it. Maybe they, uh, they beat you into submission, so now you associate God with that. Maybe, maybe they guilted you into good behavior, so you associate the name of God with that. Uh, maybe, maybe they were just like a, like a fairy godmother who gave you whatever you wanted whenever you wanted it, and so now you've associated God with that very thing. We've, we've just done the same thing with, with God. The question is, do we actually know God, or have we taken stories about God and then projected them onto him and his name? Have we heard half the story of God and then made that his identity in our hearts and in our minds? I would argue that for growing up in the South, we've probably done that more than most people. We have an idea of who God is, and so then we have expectations of this God, not based on truth, but based on what we think God is like, based on someone else's story or someone else's experience, or even our own experience, but not rooted in truth. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna show you what God does in response to Moses. And it's interesting because God doesn't come back to Moses saying, oh, I just can't do it, I'm not good enough. We're saying, yeah, yeah, you are, buddy. Yeah, you, you is kind, you is smart. Yes, you is, you can do it. <laughs> what God says is, I, I honestly don't care because I know who I am. And I know that I've called you. And so I know I'm gonna do my part. And I'm just asking you to go along with me. That's how God responds often to people like Moses. But it all comes back to his identity. So you can turn there if you want. It'll be on the screen. Might be easier for you. But Genesis 1.1 is our first introduction to God. Ironically written by Moses. But he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This past Wednesday night, we had close to 80 people in our core class on a Wednesday night. 80 adults. Yeah, which is awesome. People wanting to just know more about the story of, of the Bible. What does this actually say? And so we began in Genesis 1. And so if you were there, you're going to know some of this. If you weren't there, come. I, I, think, I think it's going to be amazing. So this is how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Now, the Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew. So we, we lose some things in translation, and we take our Western American ideas, and we place that over Hebrew language, and we get a little bit confused as to what things actually mean. This word in Hebrew for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. Say Elohim. Good. Elohim. And it means God. Now, in your Bible, that's a capital G, isn't it? So what you've learned, because you grew up in the South and your mama said, when you talk about God, you capitalize that name because of respect. That's what you do. The problem is, this word Elohim actually is just a generic term for a God. It just means God. So when the Bible begins this way, in the beginning, a God created the heavens and the earth, or the land and the skies. In the beginning, there was a God. And this God created the heavens and the earth. And here's what's gonna blow our Western American minds. 
The idea of a small g God isn't a theory. What if there actually are other higher beings? We'll study that more with the plagues. The Bible begins this way because the whole point of the Bible is to tell you who this God is, the one that created, not other ones, not not the sun God or the moon God, not the God of fertility, no, 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 the one true God. The Bible is written in such a way to clue us into there is a God who created. And we're gonna learn all about this God throughout the course of the Bible. In the beginning, a God created. This is not a name, this is a title. A title. Now the rest of the Bible, the intent is to show us who God is. So here's what's important for us this morning and anytime you read the Bible. Anytime you read the Bible, the question has to be, what does this tell me about who God is? Not, what does this tell me about me? Not, then what does this tell me about how to defeat my giants? The question is, what is this account? What is this story telling me about God? The Bible should be read as a way to clarify the identity of God. And just like you and just like me, there are plenty of people in Henry County who share the same first name as you do, as you have. And so you could be in Publix and somebody would call out your name and there could be 10 people who turn around at, the name, at, that, at that name, wouldn't there? So they'll turn around and what's distinct, and we can go to last name and middle name, but what is most distinct about all of those Jeremy's or all of those Sally's, whatever, what's distinct is their story. And the more story you get about somebody, the more you hear their story, their history, the more you understand who they actually are and how they are completely distinct from the other Sally's and the other Jeff's and the other Jonathan's in the room. This is the same with God. So this is Elohim. And then God, uh, there's things that happen in the garden and there's this whole thing with the flood, which I think you've heard about with Noah and all of that. But then, then God calls a man named Abraham and he says, you will be the father of many. I'm gonna create a whole nation of people from your seed. The problem is Abraham and his wife Sarah are infertile. They haven't had any children. And God says, yeah, yeah, but I know what I'm doing. So I'm going to, I make a covenant with you that I'm gonna make myself known through your seed, through your family line coming forward. God makes a covenant. And then we find here in Exodus, the Hebrew people. They've grown from a family to a people. Exodus three, Moses is on the backside of a mountain, Mount Horeb, later called Mount Sinai. And he's, He's tending to his father-in-law's sheep. He works for his father-in-law. I don't know how many of you work for your father-in-law, but how's that going? That good? So he's working for his father-in-law. Been doing that for 40 years as a shepherd. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace. And he's not even a good shepherd because he's on the backside of the mountain. The good shepherds get the front side. He's on the backside where nobody sees him. So he's back there working and God meets him through a burning bush. A bush that is burning but is not consumed. So if you want to turn to Exodus 3, hold your place in 6 and go to Exodus 3 so you can see this with me. We'll begin in verse 5. God, the bush is burning and God is speaking to Moses through the bush. And Moses seems completely unfazed by this, which tells you how his life is going at the time. Verse 5, God says to Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy 
ground. Now we read the word holy and we think holier than thou and the phrase I think that we think is morally uptight. Anybody met a morally uptight person? Is that your older sister? You met it, this, so we hear holy and we think, well, God must be morally uptight. So when God says, hey, take your shoes off, he sounds like your mama, doesn't he? Don't you bring that in my house. Take those shoes off. I just mopped, get your shoes off. This word holy in the Hebrew actually means set apart, completely separate from sin. In other words, it means completely unique, never seen before. So throughout the story of the scriptures from Genesis to Exodus, one big thing we've learned here in Exodus 5, this Elohim, this God is holy. He's altogether different. So the problem with that for you and me is we take human characteristics, human identities, how our dad treated us, and we throw that on a God who is altogether separate, who we don't have a box for, that we can't define. And so when God meets Moses here at the burning bush, he reminds him, hey, wherever I am is holy, it's set apart, it's different. Verse six, and he said to him, I am the God, Elohim, of your father, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob. What, who am I? Well, I'm the God of your ancestors. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at Elohim. When God introduces himself to Moses, he uses the word Elohim. The one, the one who created everything. This God who was the creator. I'm gonna keep telling you more about who I am. Who I am is I am the Elohim of your ancestors. Now go down to verse nine. God says, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So what is this Elohim like? Well, he's completely different from any other Elohim we've ever met. It's altogether separate. And then we learn in verse nine, but this Elohim is compassionate. He hears the cry of his people. This God, this Elohim, hears his people. He's personal. Then verse 10, come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Well, what do we know about this Elohim? Well, he's holy, he's set apart. He hears the cry of his people and he partners with his people to bring about freedom and deliverance. This Elohim, while he will from time to time intervene miraculously into situations, often this Elohim, this God, uses his people to fulfill his purposes. This Elohim is altogether separate this Elohim is personal and compassionate, and this Elohim uses his people to bring about his purposes. So maybe, maybe this bothers you a bit, because you read Exodus chapter three, verse nine and 10, and you hear that God heard the cries of his people, but you also know, know they've been crying out for 400 years. So where was God then? And why hadn't he intervened before? If he is all powerful, if he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants to, if he really is sovereign in control of all things, why take so long? Well, here's what's happened for you and for me when we ask that question. We've built an idea of Elohim, not based on scripture, but based on what we want Elohim to be. 
you read from Genesis to Revelation, God rarely, if ever, immediately delivers anyone from anything. And yet, he is good. And yet, he is sovereign and all-powerful. But what we've done is, we brought a distorted view of Elohim into the story, and so we read that and we think, oh, what a cruel, vicious Elohim, but then we forget, no, no, no. He's altogether separate. He's like nothing you've ever seen before. We don't get to define him that way. God very often sends people. And if you're wired like me, the first thing you think is, that's the most inefficient way to get anything done. The most efficient way to get things done is to do it yourself, amen? Anybody with me? Don't you ask your kids to do stuff. It'll take forever. And then you'll have to do it behind them. Just do it yourself. That's what I've learned about parenting. Let your kids be lazy and you do whatever. But this God, is, this Elohim is not concerned with efficiency and that bothers a lot of us, doesn't it? He's, he's not concerned with being efficient. He's concerned with building character. He's concerned with making people like him. He's concerned with people knowing him not just being able to push buttons to get what they want from this Elohim. He's not efficient, but efficiency is not necessarily the heart of God. What God is concerned about is shaping our hearts and our character, and that takes time. Let's keep learning about this Elohim. Verse 11 of Exodus 3, Moses then says to God, well, who am I? And this will be Moses' question for most of the book of Exodus. Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God, like he does, doesn't answer Moses' question directly, and yet he answers his question. Who are you, Moses? I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What mountain? Horeb, which is later called Sinai. So what do we know about this Elohim? Well, he's holy, he's altogether separate, he's set apart. He hears the cries of his people. He sends his people to fulfill his purposes and he is with us. This isn't a Christmas verse. This is a Christian verse. Who is this Elohim? Well, he's different from the sun God and the moon God and the fertility God who just shows up at the last minute, who, who's like a plumber that you call when you need something. God's not a plumber. God's with us. He's with us. Well, does that mean he was with them for 400 years while they suffered? Yes. And he didn't do anything? Yes. But I thought he was good. Yes. This Elohim is altogether separate. He's, he's different from anything we've ever seen before. I will be with you. Now this response is one of the core truths of who this Elohim is, that he is with us. But before the with us is he says, I will be. Other translations, they might say, I am with you. Because in the Hebrew, it could go either way depending on context. But the Hebrew phrase here is the, the word ehway. Say ehway. And you didn't want to do that one at all. Uh, this means that I am or I will be. I am with you. 
What's interesting about this word in the Hebrew is that it applies to the past, the present, and the future. It says all of it all at once. I was, I am, and I will be with you. I have always been. I am right now, and I always will be with you. I am and will continue to be with you. I am with you. So who is this Elohim? Well, this Elohim is with us. He is Etwe. He is with us. Verse 13, Moses again replies and says to Elohim, God, but if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the Elohim of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, remember Elohim is not a name, it's a title, what shall I say to them? In other words, there's a lot of gods. How do I know which one sent me? Which Elohim is the one that sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Etway Ashir Etway. I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am, Etway has sent me to you. This I am is not a philosophical statement, this is a personal statement. This is God saying, Whatever I am, I will always be that. Whatever I am today, I will be that tomorrow, and I was that yesterday, will be that in a year. Whatever I am, I will always be. The problem for us is that humans aren't like that, are they? Humans are not like that at all. In fact, many of you, here's, here's the truth. Maybe, um, let's, let's just start here. When you dated your spouse, they were someone, weren't they? Bless you. And they were kind, and they were compassionate, and they were generous. And they were that way for most... I mean, while you dated, they were that person. And he cleaned up after himself and he took showers and he wore deodorant. And sometimes he put on a shirt with a collar and you're this, this is who he is. And she worked out all the time and she went to the tanning bed and, and, and she only ate salads, uh, small ones. And she didn't wanna waste all of your money. And this is who she was. And then you got married and you were like, I thought I am who I am. And they were like, mm, I was, I was, but now I'm this. And then we're going to have kids and I'll be somebody completely different. Maybe it happened for you with a roommate, right? Um, maybe, maybe this happened to you. Maybe when you were in school and you had a teacher and you thought that all teachers ever thought about was you. Like they, all they thought about was how, how, how to teach you math better. And so they loved you and thought about you and prayed for you. And they wore those long skirts all the time. That's what they always wore. And then they, they slept in those and they just, they dreamed that way and they kept their glasses on. This is who teachers were. And then, and then at one point you saw a teacher somewhere outside of school and you were like, what? You should not be wearing that. You, you would get in trouble at school for wearing that very thing. And then you become an adult and you have friends who are teachers and you realize it's all just a sham. <laughs> they just act like they love you because they're paid to for eight hours a day. And in the summer, they completely forgot who you were. They have no idea. And then you'll show up like, oh, Mrs. Whoever, remember me? And they're like, yeah, sweetie. Because they don't know your name. So they call you sweetie. So humans aren't like God. Like, 
God is what he is. And whatever he is today, he will be tomorrow. We're not like that. So the problem for us is we throw human characteristics, human identity on God, and we think, well, God must have used to be that way. Maybe he was that way with Abraham, but he'll never be that way with me. Maybe, maybe he was that way with King David, but he would never. He's different now. Things have changed. No, no, no. Whatever God is today, he will forever be. God is what he is, and God is with us. He's not circumstantial. This is who this Elohim is. We've also built this idea of Elohim, that he is obligated to immediately respond when we pray. Aren't, don't we have that idea? Well, I prayed. And I was told in Sunday school, if I pray, God answers. Well, God does answer. But sometimes he says no. And sometimes he says maybe later. But he answers. But we have this weird misconception that if I ask God for something, he is obligated to give that to me. And immediately. And then we believe that the way that God primarily operates is through radical miracles, which he does do that and still does that. But sometimes he doesn't. But he is who he has always been. He is with us. He is faithful and consistent. And so when we, like the Israelites, find ourselves in a dark place and we cry out for God for intervention and we're looking for the skies to open and God to descend and doves to fall in after him, because that's what it sounds like when doves cry. God comes down and then, uh, okay. This is what we want to happen. Well, God, I, I, I wanted you to fix my kid. Why is it taking so long? Have you met your kid? Well, God, redeem my marriage, fix my marriage. Okay, he is. But we're waiting for pixie dust and fairies to come in and, and a, a fairy grandmother to come solve everything and give us a carriage. And God's saying, I heard you. I heard you and I'm with you. We have this misconception of the Lord. Then verse 15 of Genesis 3, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh. So now he's changed. Now it's not Elohim, a God. This is Yahweh. We had etway, which means I will be. This is now the, the, the shift in the prefix, meaning he is, he will be, he always is. This is God's name. Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, and the Elohim of Jacob has sent me to you. Anytime you see this, Chris taught us this a few weeks ago. Anytime you see all capital L-O-R-D, it refers to this word Yahweh, the Lord. He is, he will be. This Elohim is altogether different from what you've experienced. This God is different. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Okay. Well, if this is Yahweh, and he's the Elohim who is altogether separate, he's the one who's compassionate and personal, and here's the cries of his people. He's the one who sends his people to fulfill his promises. If, if this is who he is, what else do we know about him? Well, I'm glad you asked. Before we get into Exodus 6, it's the end of chapter 5. Exodus 5, you can turn back there to Exodus 5. This is verse 22, after the people complained to Moses about Pharaoh giving them more work. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this to the people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. 
Moses' problem is he had the wrong Elohim in mind. He was thinking of an Elohim who shows up immediately and comes with fairy dust to fix all the problems. He was thinking of an Elohim where if you push the right buttons, he gives you what he wants, what you want. He wasn't thinking about Yahweh, who's not concerned about efficiency, but concerned about our character. He must have thought of a different Elohim. And while God will deliver his people, he first has to deliver his leader. So he's working on Moses. So now God is going to tell Moses who he is, who God is. He's gonna tell him right now, again, and he'll say it again and again. Scholar and pastor Jennings Legan Duncan says this, when God starts telling you who he is, listen carefully. Something is up. I don't know how you've felt over the past year or so, but I feel like God's continuing to remind me who he is. And in the darkest season of my life, when I thought I had lost everything, the only thing I kept clinging to was that God kept reminding me who he is. He is with me. So maybe in your pleas for deliverance, what God has to do first is tell you who he is. So it might be a little longer in Egypt. It might not be instant deliverance, instant freedom from your bondage, instant healing in your marriage because the primary thing God's concerned with is that you know who he is. If he begins telling you who he is, pay attention, something is up. So God's gonna tell Moses who he is. Verse one of chapter six, the Lord said to Moses, now, now you're ready. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. This is a almost sarcastic. Pharaoh would use this phrase about his strong hand and his mighty arm. And so God says, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna use his strong hand. His strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. You've got the wrong Elohim, Moses. I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now, this Hebrew phrase is El Shaddai. You might know that from an old Amy Grant song, El Shaddai. Maybe it's Sandy Patty, I don't remember. El Shaddai. God Almighty. So in the past, what he said is, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your ancestors, the forefathers of our faith, they knew me as all-powerful, as almighty. They knew me as El Shaddai. This is who I was to them. But he continues and says, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, some of your translations read it differently and probably more appropriately from the Hebrew. Uh, it's not that God didn't reveal himself as Yahweh, it's that they didn't see him as Yahweh. Does that make sense? They were blinded to it because they like this part. They like, they like God Almighty. They like come deliver us now. They like come do great things now. They, they like that side of him. And so they neglected Yahweh. And what he says to Moses is, yeah, but you get Yahweh. Pay attention. You get this. You get all of me, the God who was and is and will forever be. And he says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And moreover, furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I am Yahweh. I hear the groanings of my people. 
whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. The outstretched arm refers back to El Shaddai, God Almighty. I will be him. I'll still do almighty things, but don't forget that I am Yahweh with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your Elohim, and you shall know that I am the Yahweh, your Elohim. I am Yahweh, and I'm yours. I'm your God. I'm a personal Elohim who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will, verse eight. That makes seven I wills, by the way. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will, this is the seventh. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Philip Ryken, a pastor and author, says, this is the difference between Genesis and Exodus. Abraham knew God as a promise maker. Moses came to know him as a promise keeper. God Almighty makes promises. Yahweh fulfills them. But Yahweh is what he has always been. And so what God tells Moses is, all the promises I made, they still count, and you, my friend, get to see them come to fruition. Quit talking back to me. I know what I'm doing, and I am with you. Any complaint of Moses comes back to God reminding Moses that God is Yahweh. I am with you. Verse nine, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. I'm sure expecting them to respond with great fanfare, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They could not hear the truth. And so the Lord said to Moses, go in and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel haven't even listened to me. You see how quickly Moses goes from the great proclamations of who God is to, yeah, but me, yeah, but I. And we can mock him all we want, but we're just like Moses. And God, from Genesis to Revelation, reminds us who he is, and the only thing we have to come back with, yeah, but I am not. And God says, I know, because I created you, but I am with you. I don't know how I'll get through this marriage, I know, but I am with you. I don't know if I can make it through the teenage years with my daughter. I know. I created her. And I'm with you. I don't know if, I don't know if this is gonna, if this diagnosis is gonna ruin me. I know. But I am with you. This is the promise of Yahweh. That he will keep his promises. And in the meantime, he is with us. Moses says, they'll never listen to me. Verse 13, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And the consistent God who was and is and who will be doesn't change his plan. You go tell them, I'm gonna bring my people out. I am Yahweh and I am what I have always been. God's reply to our complaints like Moses and fears is, I am whatever I am. I'm consistent and I'm faithful and you can trust me. 
You see, the problem for us in the darkness is that we start clinging to a false version of Elohim rather than the true Yahweh. Because we've built an idea of Elohim, not based on characteristics of Yahweh, but based on characteristics of people. Because we've been hurt by the church, we've been hurt by a pastor, we've been, uh, we've been lied to when hurt by a father or a mother or a grandfather. We, we thought God was supposed to rescue us immediately because we built that up because we saw some Marvel movies. God's not Iron Man. He is Yahweh. And while he may not be the most efficient, he is the most powerful creature in the world, in the universe. And he does what he wants when he wants, and it's for your good and for his glory, and you can trust him. He is what he has always been. Again, this is not a what to do message. This is a how to think message. If you pay attention throughout the rest of Exodus and into even the New Testament, the commands of what to do always follow God giving his identity. We'll get to the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments don't begin with thou shalt not. The Ten Commandments begin with I am the Lord your God. I am the Yahweh, your Elohim, who set you free from slavery in Egypt. And in fact, in the New Testament, when the Bible, when Jesus himself speaks of salvation, he says it this way in John chapter 17. Jesus is at the garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, he's crying, he's bleeding, uh, sweating blood. And he's about to himself have outstretched arms. And he says this. He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. The Yahweh set apart, the Yahweh who is compassionate and personal, the Yahweh who uses his people to fulfill his purposes and the Yahweh who is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. What is eternal life? What is salvation? Is to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So many of us know an Elohim or we know El Shaddai, but many of us this morning, we don't know Yahweh. And maybe you think you found eternal life because you have a picture of God who is like a vending machine a picture of God who's like 911, and if you call, he shows up, and he does. But you don't know Yahweh. You don't know a God who's altogether separate. A God who you can trust because he is almighty and he is with you. So you want freedom today? You want salvation today? This isn't about doing something. It's about thinking rightly about the Lord. He is Yahweh. Your Elohim. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we wrap up this morning? I don't know, I know me, and I know the expectations that I've placed on God based on some distorted, fairy tale, Americanized view of Elohim. And the truth is, for many of us, he isn't Yahweh. He is a God of something, a God of fertility, a God of finances, a God of marriage, a God of family, but you haven't known him as Yahweh. I will be what I will be. 
So in periods of disappointment, we are tempted to accuse God of not being who he says that he is. But the problem is he never said he would be those things. You did. And I did. You know what he said? He is with you. And he is faithful to finish what he started. I don't know where you find yourself today. I can imagine. But maybe the accusations against God aren't based on what he says that he is, but of what you said he is. And in his grace and his patience, he will continue to hear you and listen to you. And in a calm voice, he will say to you, I am with you. So maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe you need to quit believing in a false Elohim and start believing in the one true Yahweh. A God who is faithful. A God who can be trusted. And a God who is there. So maybe this morning you've spent your whole life worshiping a false Elohim. You've just about given up on him. Well, this morning there's hope for you because the thing you've been worshiping isn't true. So it hasn't let you down, you have. And once you get to the point of realizing that you're the one, you can start to worship the one true God. By admitting our sin, believing that that's him, he's the one true God. By confessing that with our lives and our mouths. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are unbelievably consistent. That who you were thousands of years ago is who you are today. And the same God that Moses and the Israelites worshiped at Mount Sinai is the same God that we worship here in Ola. You are unbelievably consistent. So for some of us today, God, would you allow that to bring hope to us? You are who you always have been and you always will be. Give us hope and trust in the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen.